I'm going to read a scripture tonight and then launch into our story and talk about why we feel that this is important. Malachi chapter 4. Now you think about this, this passage here. There is a 400-year gap between Malachi and the Gospels. 400 years there. You open your Bible, it's just like the maps in there now. Okay, but between Malachi and the Gospels, 400 years go by. So if the Lord knows that there's going to be a 400-year prophetic drought, then whatever he says at the end of that first section before 400 years of silence is going to carry some womp. You know what I mean? For 400 years, the prophets gathered every morning. Did you get anything? Anybody have a dream? Nothing. So what was the last thing he said to his people before God goes radio silent for 400 years? Malachi chapter 4. The short version is he says that at the end of the age, the, the prophet will return. And in that season... Hearts of the fathers will turn to the children and children to the fathers. Lest what? Lest I send a curse. He says, at the end of the age, however you think you've figured out your theology, whatever your end times theology looks like, you've got to run it through this filter, that at the end of the age, the hearts of fathers will turn to the children and children will turn to the fathers, or a curse comes. What is that curse? Some theologians think that it is the lack of the presence of God. Like, if the hearts don't turn towards the fathers and and children's hearts turn back, that he says, I'm not coming yet until you reach that point. What a curse is it that we don't have the presence of God? Now, this is a great church. This is a great building. Music's great. Slides are great. Everything's great. But if you don't have the presence... Do you really want to continue to do church just on what you bring? Do you really want to do church on your best song or your best sermon or your best slide? No, if we don't have the presence of God, what do we have? And he says, if our hearts don't turn towards children and the hearts of the children towards the fathers, he looks at us and goes, you're on your own. Enjoy church. We were with Lou Engle in 2005 launching a ministry called Bound for Life in Washington, D.C. And every day, we would stand in front of the Supreme Court with red tape on our mouths with the word life written on it on behalf of the unborn. And we would pray for the unborn of our nation that God would reverse the curse of Roe v. Wade and legalized abortion in our country. 4,000 babies a day have their lives ended in the womb in America. And as we would stand there and we would pray... Silently, we would never cause a ruckus, no signs, no nothing. I, you know, who thought a prayer meeting would be controversial? We'd stand there and pray, and pro-abortion people would come and they would yell things right behind us. There were times I would have to go explain to my children what on earth they were talking about. Sometimes discussions I didn't want to have at that age. But once in a while, they would say something that would bother me because there was some truth to it. They would say, what are you going to do if you win this battle? What are you going to do with the 4,000 babies that will be born the next day? 
You see, the church has pressed for 30 years to overturn Roe v. Wade, but we haven't thought much about the fact that if we end Roe v. Wade tomorrow, 4,000 babies are born Monday, 4,000 Tuesday, 4,000 Wednesday, every day, and those children are no more wanted than they were when they were about to be aborted. Church, if we don't think about those children then we will single-handedly create the largest orphan crisis of the Western Hemisphere by ending Roe v. Wade. Because for the most part, we want to say end abortion, but what are we going to do with the babies? I don't know. That's their problem. No, it's not. It's the church's problem. And so the Lord began to deal with our heart about the idea of adoption. At the point, we had three sons. We had uh, Jackson was 12, Grayson would have been 8, Zion was about five. So we got three little boys, you know, three my sons. It's just, it's great. And the Lord began to speak to us about adoption in June of 2006. We started filling out the paperwork, thought this is going to take forever. October 2nd of that year, okay, from June to October, I get a phone call. It's a social worker in Las Vegas. She said, sir, there's a little baby girl that's been born here. She's half African-American, half Latino. What do you think? So well, what do you think? I said, how many parents are you talking to? Because I wanted to know, are they talking to five or to ten sets of parents? I wanted to know because my, my heart's on the line here. And I'll never forget her words. She said, buddy, if you want her, come and get her. I said, we'll be on a plane tomorrow. This is a picture of my wife, Kelsey, with that little girl. my goodness. She's the color of a latte. She's beautiful. And we spent a week there in Las Vegas doing all this paperwork. And you have to understand that I've got three boys, okay? And I wear pretty much one color every day. And my boys kind of wear one color every day. And all of a sudden, I'm doing laundry, and I'm pulling pink stuff out of this. I'm standing in the hotel laundromat. I pull a pink something out, and I just stand there and laugh. There's been no pink in my house. But Zoe came to live with us. This is a picture of Zoe now. Zoe just celebrated her eighth birthday. Look at that face. This is the one they told me, if you want her, come and get her. Are you kidding me? Look at that face. If you want her, come and get her. Church, the word of the Lord to the church is, if you want them, if you want them, go get them. But don't talk to anybody about abortion if you're not willing to get behind this effort because you are getting ready to cause a disaster. Now you're saying, you're saying all of us have to adopt? No, I'm not saying that. We'll talk about that in a minute. I haven't let all of you off the hook either though, by the way, and my hope is to inspire some very awkward conversations between husbands and wives. I'm cool with awkward, especially when I'm causing it. So we bring Zoe home. Now we've got these three little boys and this little girl, and life is fantastic. We don't fit in the car that we own, but everything's cool. So we get Zoe. Two years go by. We, so we start uh, talking to people ado about adoption, writing about adoption, and I'm sitting in the prayer room at IHOP, and I, uh, it's a 6 a.m. prayer meeting. The Lord had spoken to us and said, are you going to get ready to adopt again just in case? And we said, well, yeah, I guess maybe we should just in case. We go through a home study. We have a home study done. It gets done on a Wednesday night. 
Thursday morning, I'm sitting in the prayer room, 6.05, and I write two things in my journal. How many of you have journals that if anybody if saw them, you'd be mortified? Because you just, like, you just dump it all out there. It's like, you know, not even coherent. And I write two things that are on my heart to do for the Lord one day, and I write them down, and they are completely unrelated. I put the pen down, and my friend Corey Russell sitting in front of me, he stands up, walks to the prayer microphone, turns around, and prays those two sentences verbatim. And I'm like, oh, whoa, the Lord is here. He does that, and my phone buzzes. All this has taken me longer to tell than it did to actually happen. My phone buzzes. I grab it, and it's a message from somebody. He's, he's saying, I don't know this person. He's found me from my website. He said, my sister-in-law just gave birth to twin girls in Florida. Do you know anybody who would want them? It's Thursday morning at 7 a.m. By Friday, the next day, 1 o'clock, my wife and I walk out of the hospital with these next little twins. We carried them out of the hospital 24 hours later, met with their birth mom. She said, I have three questions for you. She said, how do you feel about interracial children? I said, well, I've got one at home, and I didn't ask what race you were when I got on the plane. The little, little girls are quarter Japanese, quarter Thai half Caucasian. She said, okay, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a minister. She said, would you send me pictures once in a while? I said, yeah. She said, okay. She walked down. That that was it. We walked down the hall. She goes into the nursery. She checks out her baby girls. She looks around. We find a closet. She walks into this closet with these baby girls. She kisses them on the head and said, this is your new mommy and daddy. And she hands us these girls. She said, thank you, and she turned around and walked out. That was it. My wife and I are standing in a closet holding babies. We don't have a bracelet on. We don't have anything. I'm like, this is not a good idea. (laughs) The nurse comes in, you know, to get an IV. She's like, what are you doing here? You got babies. So we walk out with with Anna and Mercy. We had no ramp up. We had nothing. I have to go to Target across the street from the hospital to buy car seats. I'm out in front of the hospital birthing center taking car seats out of the boxes. People are walking by thinking, that is the laziest man ever. He should have done that months ago. You know, I wanted to tell him. I didn't know, but that would have only caused more questions. That was six years ago. This next picture, this is Anna and Mercy. These are my twin girls. These are my girls. Can you tell them apart? Eh, Sometimes I can't either. Don't feel bad. Mercy came home the other day with her school book. She's in kindergarten now. She came home with her little book, All About Me. And on the page that it says, what do you want everybody to know about you? She made her teacher write that I am Mercy, not Anna. (laughs) Because we get them mixed up all the time. They're awesome. So we're home with these little jewels. When they're little, they're, they're babies. They're six weeks old. And my wife comes out of the restroom, and she says, ah, I need to have a meeting. And so I go down, because when you have that many kills, and that's where you have your meetings. And I go in the bathroom, and she turns around, and she hands me a pregnancy test and screams into a towel, because we have six-week-old twins that we did not expect, and now we're pregnant. And so now we have Piper. Go ahead and show the next picture. These are my four girls. Now, keep in mind, i got three older boys. Now I've got Zoe and Anna and Mercy and Piper. This is the princess tribe. They terrorize our neighborhood. You don't mess with these four girls. 
So, wow, I didn't expect this. We had three kids, now we have seven. I mean, in the matter of just a couple of years. And we're writing about adoption and we're talking about it. And two and a half years ago, I'm sitting in my office thinking about the fact that I have seven children and how did this happen. And I get a phone call. You'd think I'd quit, learn to quit answering the phone. I get a phone call. It's my twin's birth mom's sister. She said, the twin's mom has been homeless. She's just kicked out of a U-Haul rental storage area she's been living in. She needs help, and she's pregnant with twins again. That was kind of my reaction, too. I literally blurt out, surely not. I just couldn't fathom that. Like, mathematically, how does that divide by two times? I don't know. But she's pregnant with twins again. She's in no condition to raise them. And I went from surely not to, what are you going to do with these kids? They said, we don't know. I said, would she let us take them? I went from surely not to we'll take them. I'm not kidding, in about two minutes. You know why? Because you see those little two twin girls there on the outside? In my mind, I saw them at 15 years old. They're beautiful. Think what they're going to look like when they're 15. And they're 15 years old in my mind, and they just are discovering the fact that they had twin siblings, and they're looking at me and saying, there were more like us, and you didn't want us? I will take as many like that as I can get, man. I said, we'll take them. Hit the next picture. I'm sorry, we have three kindergartners now. I just think it's the funniest thing in the world. I was expecting there to be the picture of the twins. Go ahead and hit the next one. This is Creed and Cadence. They're quarter Japanese, quarter Thai, half Puerto Rican. For those of you that are keeping score, we have six ethnicities spread across seven kids. I can't wait to fill out the census form. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. So we adopt Creed and Cadence. We bring them into their home, and suddenly we have nine. Because I felt in my heart, my older twins say, if there are more like us, wouldn't you want them? And I just couldn't fathom saying no. We have obliterated boredom at our house. But we have equity in the realm of the pro-life movement. And we have equity before heaven. When we say God and abortion, because we have taken strides to prepare for the day when God will do what he said he will do. So my challenge for you today is how do you embrace this as a church? What are the things you have to do? Because I understand not everybody can or has the grace to do what we've done. Let me just take that off your shoulders for a minute. I'll put it back on in a while. But not everybody is supposed to do this. But we have, and because we have, I can come here and address the whole thing with you for a minute. Because there is a battle raging for the children of our nation. Satan rages against children. Why? Is it, oh, because they're vulnerable? No, it's because they are dangerous. Because that is what the future looks like. And there is a ton of things that Kelsey and I cannot do right now. Like, leave the house. Well, you know, I'm serious. I don't travel much. I don't travel as much as I, as I would if we didn't have nine kids because when I travel, the wheels fall off. It takes till Wednesday to put them back on. It's hard. My wife is tired right now. 
She's looking at the Benadryl bottle and pondering the ethics of what that means. Is anybody sick? Does anybody feel an allergic reaction coming on? You know, it's tiring. She's got six of them, eight and under. And so I don't do this a whole lot. I don't write as much as I would if we didn't have nine kids. We have looked and said, okay, we're going to put ourselves a little bit on the back burner here for the lives of others. But in a hundred years, we're going to look like geniuses. Because how many families will have our spiritual DNA because we decided we, there are certain things we won't do right now? There's so much baloney that is taught about having impact in your life that is really about having personal renown. Oh, I want to reach the nations. Eh, what if it doesn't involve standing on a stage? And what if it's delayed 100 years if the Lord tarries? So there's a ton that we don't do right now but I'm telling you what, 100 years from now, they will wonder what kind of mad genius were they because we've just decided to delay it and impact these kids. I want to build a case for adoption in our churches and our houses of prayer, things we have got to address, five imperatives the church has to think about in the world of adoption. Number one, you've got to address or challenge the American dream or what I like to call comfortable are us. Just being pro-adoption is a little bit like being against drunk driving. Nobody's going to argue with you. Stand on a corner, rail against driving. Yeah, nobody's going to argue with that. Nobody's going to argue with adoption. You don't get into a lot of arguments. Everybody thinks somebody should adopt. They get very prickly when you challenge them and ask if maybe they should adopt. And they give a lot of reasons as to why they shouldn't. You know, well, uh, you don't know our family, or we've got some other plans, or maybe we're scared of the process. But in many cases, the reason they don't want to ultimately comes down to comfort. Americans have a ridiculously high expectation of comfort. I don't know. This room maybe could seat 300 Americans. In China, you could put 500 people in here. In Africa, you could put 600. Why? Because we have an expectation of what we deserve in the way of comfort. And that idea has been growing for decades. Historian James Truslow Adams popularized the phrase, the American dream. And when he wrote it, what he meant in 1931 was that everyone could succeed if they worked hard enough. What it has come to mean in our culture is that everyone will have a more luxurious standard of living than the previous generation. We think that is an inalienable right. And when you look at the trajectory of our lives, you can understand how we got that. My grandparents immigrated to this country, moved to North Dakota, homesteaded, moved there with wagons, and literally could not dig a sod house that first year. They broke open their wood crates. They burned the, the wood and melted the ground, dug a hole, flipped the wagon over it, piled dirt in, and moved, lived in that for months until they could build a sod house. My parents had a conventional stick home. They didn't have indoor uh, commode until I'd have been five or six years old, but it was much better than, than my grandparents had. And now you look at my standard of living in the way of a house. I've got a much nicer house than my parents have had. 
And my kids may have certain expectations based on that trajectory, but you know what? Is that constant pressing of the envelope of comfort practical? It can't last. The belief that our comfort is an inalienable right is not God's dream for you. And if you end up living a life and you have those things, that's awesome. God may or may not notice because that's not what his dream is for you. Jeremiah 29, there's this crazy passage. Jeremiah prophesies the word of the Lord to all of the uh, Hebrew children who have been exiled to Babylon. Okay, you understand the story? All the people that are there with Daniel in Babylon, you know the VeggieTales song? Okay, that's, unfortunately, that's kind of our quickest reference for many Old Testament stories. But they're in Babylon, and Jeremiah prophesies, and when he prophesies, he sends it in a letter, and they're probably very excited. Wow, we got a letter from Jerusalem, from the home office in Jerusalem. Let's see what he says. Maybe he says it's time to overthrow these Babylonians and come home. What is the word of the Lord when you live in Babylon? This is what he tells them. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those that carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease, and seek the peace and prosperity of the city that I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. He tells them, get married, have kids, have a garden, pray for the city, that you would have peace because you're going to be there a while. You're not residents of that kingdom, but you're there. You're residents of Jerusalem, but you live there. You're a citizen of Jerusalem. Stay where you're at. Pray that it would go well. Then he goes on to tell them this. This is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name, and I have not said them. He said, I know your prisoners there. I know you can't leave. You might as well make the best of it. Have a home. Let your kids get married. Have grandkids. Do whatever you need to do, but don't listen to the Babylonian dream. Don't feed the dream the Babylonians are trying to feed you. Now, like I said, sometimes we make people nervous when we talk about adoption. And some of them are nervous because they bought into the Babylonian dream. And they say, well, you know, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but we're residents here, and it's not too bad, actually. We kind of like it around here. And they buy into that Babylonian dream that says they have to have a certain standard of living or they won't fit. There is an unspoken uh, law, and it's different in some areas of the country than others, of how many children you should have. Some areas of the country, it's like one or two. Others, it's three or four. We've managed to blow out that law in any part of the country. Nobody thinks you should have nine. And they're quick to tell you, you have too many kids. Who told you that your family's too big? Your nosy Babylonian neighbor. It's none of their business if the Lord has called you to that. It's really not. That's between you and the Lord. Who told you you couldn't afford to have more kids if that's what the Lord laid on your heart? Your Babylonian credit card. Your Babylonian banker. Who told you? That if you have a large family or you adopt more kids, you take more, well, then you won't be able to take care of the ones you have and they won't have the best. You know, that's your Babylonian mama. 
who's looking out for her grandkids. But that is the Babylonian dream that you've got to look out. Everybody's got to be so comfortable. Where else in the world do you find that? Only here. If you're going to impact the realm of adoption, you have to challenge that American dream of how much comfort do I think I deserve. I'll tell you what. We live in a nice home. But we got nine kids and a live-in grandma. It's a little cozy. You divide by square footage, we're fairly crowded. I don't remember the last time I sat down to eat dinner. That's okay. Stand at the bar, let everybody else sit at the table. We, you know, it's not that big of a discomfort. Don't hold on to your comfort if God is telling you to care for children. The second imperative that any church has to address, if you're going to dive hardcore into adoption, you've got to address the race issue. The adoption industry, like our nation, is fraught with racism. And it is powered by money and the ignorance of adopted couples. A couple of years ago, I was at the Freedom Center, the National Underground Railroad Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. And they have a docket there. It's a, it's a museum dedicated to people who have escaped from slavery. They've got a docket where they were selling slaves and shows their age and their condition and their race and their price. It's painful to read. Twelve-year-old boy. They use a word we don't use anymore. There's a price. Twenty-year-old woman and a price. Most days, certainly every week, because of the realms that I'm in, I get emails that read, Caucasian girl newborn, and an adoption fee. Latino boy, and an adoption fee. African-American boy, and, an, and the fees vary wildly based on race. I have a friend who works at an agency, and I've worked at agencies, and they're not all like this. Please don't take this as a blanket condemnation but there is much in, in the adoption world that is wrong. A friend who works in an agency, and a young girl calls her, and she says, uh, I'm, I'm expecting, I'd like to make an adoption plan, I'm Latino, can you help me? She said, yes. Oftentimes, Latino babies bring a premium for some reason. So the woman came in, and she was Puerto Rican. She was very, very dark. She rarely appeared to be black. And the owner of the agency came out and said, don't help that girl with any prenatal care. My friend said, why? She said, because we won't be able to move that baby. So they wouldn't give the girl the care because her skin was too dark. Saying, this doesn't really happen. This happens and it's legal. It's legal. There is a massive need for fathers for African-American and mixed-race children. And church, we don't have the luxury or the time to debate the propriety of multiracial adoption. Don't even go there. We have kids who need homes. And you're talking about pigmentation? Come on. Now, to be fair, my question when I adopted an African-American daughter was, like, I'm not just white. I'm, like, translucent. Okay, I grew up in North Dakota. 
And legitimate question, can I represent my African-American daughter's cultural heritage to her? Can I do that? That's a legitimate question. And then one day I looked at my boys, my white boys, listening to rap music, eating Chinese food, sitting on Swedish furniture. I don't understand their culture. I, I, like, I, I was not called to be a museum curator or a historian. I was called to be a dad. And maybe we're going to miss some stuff. Maybe we're going to goof some stuff up. But you know what? My little girl has a bed that's hers. And she's got a dad that's hers. And we may make some mistakes culturally on the long line. And we're going to do the best we can. But we are not going to make the mistake of leaving kids without parents. Permanence trumps culture every time. Some of you are saying, well, is it fair to the child? I don't know. Ask my daughter. She looks pretty happy in those pictures. She's not complaining. Now, someday, is she going to face a struggle because of her race? Yes. And when she does, we are going to be the most supportive family she can possibly imagine. You have to remember, the situation was really bad when we got it. It's not perfect now, but it's a lot better than it was. And I will take better over bad any day because perfect ain't coming until Jesus comes back. So you can sit on your hands and wait for him to come back and make it all right, or you can partner with him right now. Some people say, well, I have other circumstances. If I were to adopt a, a multiracial child, my family wouldn't understand Genesis 2.24 says a man leaves his father and his mother is united to his wife. And there are families, young married couples, living like Peter Pan, refusing to grow up even when the Lord has spoken to them about these things. And it's time that you sit down with your parents and you say, this is what the Lord has called us to do. And we would love for you to be a part of it. We need to address the race issue. We also need to take a team approach to adoption. This is the part where I let some of you off the hook. Because if everyone adopts, that ain't going to work. Because adoption brings in so much need that we need others to help carry the load. And the Lord surrounds adoptive families with support structure that help. Nine kids breaks everything. Everything. It breaks your refrigerator. It breaks your dishwasher. It breaks... We cannot fit in a Chevy Suburban. We don't fit. We have to have a 15-passenger van. Nothing normal works with a big family. So we need people to come around us and help us. And they are as active in the adoption movement as we are. We have a dear friend named Becky. Becky's a few older, years older than I am. And she, last year, all during the school year, one day of the week after school, would come and get my twins and take them to Chick-fil-A. And they loved being, they called her Bella Becky. She was like their adopted grandma. And they loved on her. And you know what? Becky's grandchildren live in Australia. And she's not able to be with them as much as she would like to. And so she takes care of ours in faith, believing that Jesus will send somebody to take care of hers. There's got to be a team approach to adoption as a church or it doesn't work. Maybe you're retired and you can be an adoptive grandparent. Maybe the Lord has blessed you financially and you can help with finances. But it takes a team to do this well. Another imperative 
is birth mother care. Because so often we get wrapped up in the idea of adoption. We're going to go and go and go. And we forget that the fact there's a woman who's making an unbelievable sacrifice. And she needs cared for before, during, and after. Our first adoption with Zoe was a closed adoption. We met her birth mom very briefly. We know almost nothing. And as an adoptive parent, I'm a little scared of that relationship, and I was fine with that. But now we've got a different relationship with our twins' birth mom. We know who she is. We talk to her family a lot. We talk to her once in a while. I've got all kinds of cool stories about their... My twins' great-grandparents met in a Japanese internment camp and got married as teenagers. I've got stories I can tell them. But more importantly, we can look them in the eye and say, you're... you're your birth mom was taken care of. And if the church doesn't take care of the birth families, we're only really dealing with half the equation. Because while I look at that, those four, that princess tribe, I look at my daughters, he looks that way at his daughter, the birth mother, with the same heart. And let me tell you what, there is nothing like a father who feels his kids are not being treated well. Nothing. I've discovered in my own life. My 13-year-old is a soccer player and referee. It's his part-time job. He referees soccer games. And he got called in. He was refereeing games the other night. I went to watch him, see the end of it. I'd rather watch him play than ref any day. Any day. Because the soccer culture is that you complain about the ref. It's just, it's as much a part of the game as the ball. Everybody does it. And so I'm standing behind this row of, of dads. They're all sitting in their lawn chairs. I'm standing behind them. They don't know who I am. And they're complaining about the calls that my son is making. And it's not personal. And I know it's part of the game, so I don't really care. They're grumbling. They're saying, oh, that was out. Oh, that was in. Oh, he called that wrong. And I, you know, I don't care. Earlier in the day, he was playing and I was yelling. So I, what's the difference? But well, he's refing a U16 girls match, Division One, So it's very good, and the girls are much bigger than he is. And he suddenly he doesn't look 13. He looks about 8, standing there with his little flag. You know. And these dads start busting on him. One dad goes, they better end this game pretty soon. This kid's got to get home for bedtime. And the next dad says, yeah, if he doesn't get home pretty soon, there's going to be no movies appropriate for him to watch. That was kind of funny. The next one says, yeah, his mom's only 26. And I see where this is going. This has gotten to be into a bit of a contest. And this is right on the edge of, that ain't funny. So I'm standing behind them. And I stepped up. I said, actually, no, that kid's mom is in her 40s. I know because that's my wife and that's my boy. Eight dads go, huh? And, and they're freaked out, and it, which is hilarious to me because I am so dang imposing, you know. <laughs> but they're smart enough to know we may have just ticked off a dad. And we may have really goofed up. Dead silence for like two minutes. It's really awkward. I told you I'm fine with awkward. Finally, one of them goes, how old's your boy? I said, he's 13. He said, you can be proud. <laughs> I am. But there is something about when a father feels his children are being mistreated, you don't want to mess with him. 
Church, we do not want to mess with God if we have not taken care of birth moms. For real. Because I can show you pictures of little babies all day long and the tears flowing. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. The birth moms are a train wreck. Everybody thinks the birth mom is Susie, the, the high school senior who, who fell in love with the football captain and got pregnant and got sent away to no, I have yet to meet that birth mom. The birth moms are 27 years old. They might have a college degree. They've got a, 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 a warrant out for arrest for something. They've got a restraining order. I mean, their lives are a wreck, church. And I'm having a hard time convincing people to scoop up the babies. We've got to have to scoop up the birth moms. Or this whole thing is a farce. And we're in it for ourselves. The last thing that we've got to tackle in the way of adoption is the money issue. Adoption is expensive. When Zoe, we got the phone call for Zoe, they told us what the fee was. It was the price of a really good minivan, just to put it in perspective. And we were $7,000 short. And, you know, somewhere Dave Ramsey's going to have a heart attack. But I said, okay, we'll be there. We'll have the money. And uh, we bought plane tickets, $7,000 short. Send an email out to everyone that we know. Pray with us. This is what we're short. We race to the airport the next morning. I open the, uh, I open my laptop, and I have an email from a friend that said, last night I watched a documentary about revival in Las Vegas. You're going to Las Vegas to get this little girl. I want to sow into the potential of revival in Las Vegas. I want to give you this last seven thousand dollars. Shut the laptop. God's man of faith and power. I got her figured out. Now we got our we got our all of our money. We jump on the plane. We're flying. I've never been to Las Vegas before. I told you I'm from North Dakota. North Dakotans just don't go to Las Vegas. We are notoriously conservative. We're the kind of people that wear suspenders and belts at the same time. We just play it safe. So we don't go to Las Vegas. So I'm going to Las Vegas for my first time. Our only exposure to Las Vegas is when we were in our... I was 30, my wife was 28, and her parents both died very suddenly. Both got ill and died. There was a modest insurance policy, not a huge one, but a relative took the entire insurance policy, flew to Las Vegas, and blew it all in one weekend. So that's my template for Las Vegas. And as we're flying in, the Lord speaks to both of us at the same time. It never happened before like this. The Lord said, your inheritance was squandered in this city, but I'm sending you back with real money to buy an inheritance for my son and this little girl. And so while some of you look at that and go, wow, adoption can cost what? 15, 20, 25, $30,000? Yes, but in 10 years from today, I will have an African-American, Latino, 18-year-old. I'll have Japanese, Thai, Caucasian, 16-year-olds. I'll have another pair that are 12. And somebody that has gone another path will have a 10-year-old minivan that they didn't want the day they drove it off the lot. So tell me, who made the best use of what money? We have signed on for the life issue, for the unborn in our nation, but we have signed on for life, okay? We have made commitments that have, will alter the trajectory of our lives forever. And I stand before you as a dad, tired, a little frazzled, 
a little concerned about how the Lord is going to work anything out. Watching my older boys, wishing I could help them, but I just can't. So, you know, they're, they're out making their way. They've got jobs and they're paying for their own cars. And, doing, and I'm saying I would not make a different decision if I were given another chance ever. We are in this for life. And I want to challenge your church. First of all, thank you for making this a priority and for giving me a Sunday. I understand, or a, a Saturday night. I understand weekends are a huge deal. You only have so many of them. And I'm honored that you did that. I'm challenging you as a church. Don't look at this as a curiosity. Look at this as a what is our role in extending this James 127 care for the widow and orphan. You tack one more thing onto the end of this. That passage in James 127 is often misinterpreted. Because it says, pure religion is to care for the widow and the orphan. And it's often translated, and to keep oneself stained from the world. That word, and, is not even in the original language. In the original language, it is the caring for the widow and the orphan that keeps you from being stained by the world. There is a sanctifying part of caring for widows and orphans that changes your heart. And I would encourage you as a church to run hard after that.